We're going to be in Daniel chapter 5 this morning. I've been encouraged, as I've heard several say, that they're reading through Daniel on their own, and it's been encouraging for them. It's been a very encouraging book for me to teach out of and study through. We'll be in chapter 5 this morning. Remember the book's cut in half and then cut in half again, and we saw deliverance of those who know God in chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 4 through 6 has been this theme of God judging the Gentiles. In chapter 4, we saw God judge, humble, Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 5, he's going to judge Belshazzar, his descendant. In chapter 6, he'll judge the enemies of Daniel who sought to have him destroyed. They will instead be destroyed. In chapter 4, last week, we saw the last of Nebuchadnezzar. He's gone. His important role in the story is over. And in chapter 5, we're going to say goodbye to his descendant and his successor, Belshazzar, and the Babylonian Empire. Now, unlike all the previous chapters, we're only going to get halfway through this this morning. It's a little overwhelming to try and get through 30 to 40 chapters in a single teaching at all. You've all been very patient. We're only going to take half of chapter 5 this morning. And Lord, as we begin chapter 5 of Daniel, I just ask that your spirit would be with all of us so that we hear what you want each one of us to hear and to take away in Jesus' name. Daniel 5, verse 1, Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, He was drinking wine in the presence of his thousand. And I'm going to interrupt briefly here as we move along. But first, who is Belshazzar? We've suddenly gone from chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, the guy we know a lot about. Now Belshazzar just comes up out of the blue. Remember, the, the sequence in Daniel isn't always sequential, and sometimes we jump years. You remember chapter 4 from the earlier chapters of Daniel was 20 or 30 years down the pike. Well, here we're another 20 or 30 years down the pike when Belshazzar's introduced. It calls him in this chapter, it doesn't call him, but it says of him that Nebuchadnezzar is his father. In the Middle East, this could mean literally his dad, the way we would use the term, his father. It could also mean grandson. It could mean great-grandson. It means that he's in the line of Nebuchadnezzar. It doesn't necessarily require that he be his direct son, Uh, The reason we bring this up is there's about 20 or 30 years between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. So Nebuchadnezzar died about 562. This is 539. Also, Belshazzar is not the high king. Uh, Again, if you study archaeology or if you read biblical critics, there's been criticism in the past over the use of Belshazzar, as there will be about Darius in the future, because archaeologists have said he's not the king. We don't have his name in our lists of kings. He was the king, though, and archaeology has turned up some of this evidence since many of the critical works were written in the past. But this was the situation. Nabonidus is the high king of Babylon at this time, and Belshazzar is either his son or his stepson. And Nabonidus the king, and we don't get this from Daniel, this is just from historical texts and stela and all the other ways we get data from the past, but Nabonidus routinely lived in Arabia instead of Babylon. I'm not sure why that is, but that was routinely the case. So his son or stepson, Belshazzar, was reigning in Babylon. This was, this was the routine. Israel also had times when there were two kings reigning at the same time. This was true of Uzziah and his son, whose name I forget right now. This wasn't unusual. So later in the chapter when Belshazzar says, whoever can interpret this writing, which we'll look at, will be third in the kingdom, It's because he was second behind Nabonidus, the high king. So he is king, king in Babylon. His father or stepfather, Nabonidus, 
is elsewhere, which we'll look at here in just a little bit. Uh, 5.2, when Belshazzar tasted the wine, he's at this party, the wine's flowing, his uh, high lords, his wives and concubines, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So we're at a party, and the wine is flowing, and I guess the first thing that strikes me is, be careful when the wine is flowing. This is kind of an aside, this is not the point of the story, but in my mind, wine is like electricity. I inspect homes, I tell people, you know, electricity, it's fire under control. As long as your wiring's right, electricity's a great thing and it's helpful and productive, etc. You know, if your wiring's wrong, you've got problems. And, you know, Scripture does not condemn wine per se. In fact, Jesus miraculously presents wine at the wedding in Cana. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4 that nothing God's created should be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Ecclesiastes and Proverbs talks about it, compares life, a full, joyous life, with wine. So that's all fine, but there's a downside. Just like if you wire a house wrong, you can get fires. If you abuse wine, there's trouble. And that seems to be what's going on here. And you've got, in fact, here you've got a king drinking too much, apparently. And you've got Proverbs, I think it's 29... One wine's a mocker, strong drink. It makes you lose your reason. And in fact, later in Proverbs, it says it's not for kings to drink. And the thought there was, if I drink too much, I lose my judgment. I lose my sound reason. And I get into trouble. And so here, apparently, the wine's flowing a little too freely. And King Belshazzar's drinking a little too much. And he unwisely, while under the influence, makes a very bad decision. The decision, though, is consistent with the rest of his life, as we'll see. So at verse 3, they brought the gold vessels that he has unwisely asked for. They were taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank the wine. They praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. At verse 4, so King Belshazzar takes the holy cups, instruments from God's temple in Jerusalem, and he profanes them. He makes them common at his drink fest here. It's interesting also that when it says they praise the gods of gold, silver, bronze, and iron, these first four, does this ring a bell? I hope so. Because this is the direct order, isn't it, of the metals in the statue of chapter 2. So not only are they praising the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and, and stone, But it seems that God, as Daniel's being written, it's the thought that they're praising the gods of the kingdoms of this world, but not the great king, not the high king. They're drinking to the gods of this world in the order, descending order, of the kingdoms of the world presented in chapter 2. Now, we know that there's a drink fest. There's a big, the Bud Brothers Ball or whatever. This is a big, wild night. Uh, But if you don't understand the rest of the context, the madness doesn't really sink through. Uh, If you've read chapter 5, you know how this chapter ends. But if we say, what's the context? What's going on this night while we're having this big bash in Babylon? Uh, It's interesting that Babylon is surrounded by the Medo-Persian Empire while this feast is being thrown. That helps put this in context. See, the Babylonian 
army has already been defeated by the Medes and the Persians. Their army's been defeated. And Nabonidus the king has probably already been taken captive. So here is Belshazzar with the lords and with his wives and friends and concubines in Babylon, the city. They're an island surrounded by enemy armies. That's the context. That's the setting. So we're eating, drinking, and making merry while we're surrounded by the enemy army. How rational is that? And if you say, well, then what, what, what are they thinking? Why aren't they afraid? You know, apparently, we've talked about this before, but Nebuchadnezzar had built Babylon with these incredibly thick, high walls. The Euphrates River ran through it, so they always had water. And in lieu of any siege, Babylon, this city, had provisions and stores for years. They knew they could outlast any army. They had no concern. And the thought here is that my gods, my goods, and my city walls are going to keep any harm away from me. I've got all the food, everything I need inside the city. The walls are going to keep me safe, and I'm good to go. And I can laugh in the face of adversity because no one can get me as he toasts the gods of of this world and of course how wrong he was but this is insanity this is insanity we talked about rational and irrational thought last time relative to pride this is irrational this is insane this reminds me of Nero fiddling while Rome burns Babylon's an island in a storm and Belshazzar proudly and vainly toasts his impotent gods even as he's delivered over to judgment by the god he has spurned He's dead before this night's over. He's gone. And Babylon as an empire is history. This night, while he's praising Babylon's gods. This is the end. He has no rational thought here. This makes me think, for you and for I, you wouldn't say that Belshazzar was uh, an atheist. He wasn't. He trusted in gods. And he led his life, religiously, you could say, It's just that the ones he trusted were the wrong ones. So that in life, or especially in adversity, when he needs help, it's not there. It's a vain hope. It's a vain hope. It makes me wonder, you know, I assume most of us are Christians, but how many of us really, in good times or bad, are actually entrusting ourselves into the hands of the living God, the one who reveals mysteries, delivers from judgment or death, and rules mankind? How many of us are actually seeking that God instead of the little gods of this world, like how smart I am, how wealthy I am, how good-looking I am, my social standing, whatever things I have control over. I mean, most of the time, I'm afraid most of us, good times and bad, we're trying to rely on things that in the end they can't support us. They're the little gods. They're gods of gold and silver. They're not the great God. And there's only one God that really has power to save, and to bless and to give prosperity, real prosperity, real joy, real life. That's Jesus and God the Father. And yet often, even as Christians, instead of living under them, praising them, worshiping them, this great high God, we're worshiping the little gods of the lives and the things that we can control, the things we can put under our hand. It's a mistake. It's insane in the end. It's not rational. Daniel 5, 5, the party's going on. The music's probably loud. This is probably at night, you know, and we've got the candles and the torches burning. And somewhere against the wall, probably not too far from the king, 
probably in the light of one of these torches, suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. The king's been having a good time, and his face is probably red from from heat and wine and fun. The king's face grew pale. His thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. This sounds like a cartoon, doesn't it? It would make a good movie. It's certainly a great story, but it would make a great cartoon. He goes from not a care in the world, I'm having the time of my life, to I am quaking, physically shaking, from one moment to the next. You know, it's as if God takes this dramatic sign so that he can grab this little person, this king, by the scruff of the neck and get his attention. You know, the writing on the wall is an idiom now for, if we say, well, the writing's on the wall, it means that judgments come, it's too late, I can see that I'm fired, I've lost my fortune, whatever, you know. This has become an idiom from this story. You know, the, the trouble here is God should not have had to write on the wall. And we'll talk about this next time. But uh, if God's writing on your wall, you've been ignoring him. Because this is just the end. This is the last. This is the last thing. As we'll see next time, God's going to say, Belshazzar, you knew better. You knew, you saw, you heard, and you ignored it all. So by the time the writing comes on the wall, it's too late. And this is interesting, too. You know, last time we looked at Nebuchadnezzar, and he was lifted up in pride, and God said he was going to judge him. We talked about he was irrational and insane because he thought it was his own power that had created all the wealth and the prosperity. But God, not Nebuchadnezzar, God humbled Nebuchadnezzar for Nebuchadnezzar's good. And it appeared in chapter 4 that Nebuchadnezzar was converted This high king was abased and understood who God was and who he was and was converted. His descendant is not given that luxury. Belshazzar is cut off in his folly, his insanity, and his pride. The writing on the wall, God didn't choose to exercise the same kind of mercy towards Belshazzar that he did to Nebuchadnezzar. And we'll talk about that more next time. But the writing on the wall, it's too late. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple, which was the color of royalty, have a necklace of gold, wealth around his neck, and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. So third behind him, Nabonidus, Belshazzar, this person's as high, highly elevated as I can make him whoever can read this and tell me what it means. Uh, He is frightened to death. He knows this is something that's meaningful to him. He knows he needs to find out what it means. And so he is like saying, half of my kingdom to whoever can tell me what this means. So his response is to get help. And you remember all through these stories in uh, Daniel, anytime an enigma comes up, what does the king do? He calls all the wise men and says, what does it mean? And you know, this is wise. There's wisdom in in doing this. And as you know, presidents today, for instance, have lots of advisors because their influence is so great and the responsibility is so wide, there's no way they can be fully apprised of everything they would need to know to make good decisions. So when the president's going to make some decision, he calls for his advisors. 
This is a good thing. This is a wise thing. And if you look at kings of all ages, they've all relied on advisors wisely. They couldn't rule well if they didn't. So this is actually a good step. It's the same thing we've seen every other time a question or dilemmas come up. They call for their advisors. This is a good idea. It's a good idea for us. And we'll talk about this also a little later. But when you're in trouble and when you're not, it's good to have good advice. It's good to have good advice, and when trouble arises, as it surely will, it's good to be prepared to go and get good advice if you haven't had it already. At verse 8, it says, All the king's wise men, these wise counselors he's relied on all along, came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. Remember, in the earlier chapters and stories as well, this sign came from God because he wants to bring his man into the story. Just like the dreams we've seen earlier. What does it mean? Well, the wise men don't know, but God's man, Daniel, knows. And so that's what we're going to see here. The sign was given so that Daniel would be brought in. Verse 10, it says, The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles, and the queen spoke and said, and this queen, probably not his wife, probably his mother or grandmother that's speaking to him here, not present at the party, maybe wise enough not to be at the party, but she's heard what's happened and she's come in. O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Now, it takes the queen, the mother or grandmother of Belshazzar, to recommend to him that he bring in Daniel. <clears throat> Just based on age and years, he should have known Daniel. This shouldn't have been new information for him that there's a guy in your kingdom that actually is good at this. He's old enough, he would have known Nebuchadnezzar, and he should have known Nebuchadnezzar's key advisors. He hasn't been using them. An obvious question is why? And I can't help but think that like Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, do you remember this story? When Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam becomes the new king. Rehoboam asks his father's advisors, the wisest man on earth who had wise advisors, asks them, what do I do as the new king? And their advice is, be gentle on the people, lighten their load, they'll serve you forever, they'll love you. And then he asks the young guys, his age, the untried wise men, what do you say? And they say, forget that. You need to tell them that you're far harder than your, your uh, father Solomon. And that compared to him, he's light compared to you. And so, Rehoboam listens to the counsel of the unwise younger men. And in doing so, he loses the northern kingdom. And this was from God because God had told David this, this would happen. But I can't help but think that that's what Belshazzar has done. There were these old, wise counselors. I suspect that he looked down his nose at them because they were Jewish. 
They were from a conquered people. Their God hadn't delivered them from the gods of the Babylonians. And so he looks down at his nose at them and uses the guys that say things the way he likes to hear. And Daniel and his men are someplace on the sidelines. They're not here until the queen mother calls for him. As important as it is for you and I to get advice, it's important uh, where it comes from. He's getting advice probably all along, but when he's got real trouble and needs real advice and real help and he calls in the guys that are his counselors, they offer absolutely no help. They can't answer, they can't read it, they can't interpret it, they can't help him. In good times or in bad, it's important that you and I get good advice. And the prime place for that is the scriptures for us. We've got this body of wisdom between the covers of your Bible. You can sit down with it any day and read it. It's wisdom from God. It represents Christ also, who it says is made to us wisdom from God. So we've got the scriptures themselves. We've, we've also got the availability of, of godly Christian counselors, people who value what God values and hopefully know his word and have lived with him, walked with him long enough to also be helpful. So as important as it is to get advice, it's important that that advice be godly and helpful. I want to close by reading a couple of poems, and and we'll pray uh, with a final couple of points. But listen to this uh, poem. This was written by uh, William Henley. It's famous. This poem was read or referenced by, uh, who was the bomber that blew up the building in Oklahoma? Yeah, thank you, Timothy McVeigh. You talk about insanity. This is a guy going to his death, like Belshazzar, who's clearly out of touch with reality. Listen to his parting thoughts as his life is about to be taken. Invictus by William Henley. Out of the night that covers me black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of a shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This quoted by a guy who's going to his death sentence and facing the God of the universe. This was his final thought. There's also, not quite as well known, but there's a response written by an anonymous author years after this with a different thought. Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since he's the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under that rule which men and women call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, there is life yet to be with him. He's the aid that, despite diminished strength and length of years, keeps me unafraid. It matters not, though straight the gate, he cleared from punishments the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. What a, what a change. What a contrast. Insanity on one hand, sober reality on the other. In good times and in bad, what gods do you and I rely on? 
God's plural, little gods, anything that we have control over, anything the world itself can provide, versus the true living God, the rock that says he's immovable, the rock that we can always found our life on. And when we need counsel, where are we going? Is your Bible dusty at home? Or are you cracking its pages regularly for wisdom? And when you need advice, who do you go to? Do you go to godly Christians who've lived life long enough and know the scriptures and the Lord well enough to give you godly advice? Again, in good times or in bad, that's the kind of advice we need. Let's close and pray. Lord, I think of Philippians 2 that Paul says uh, there will be there will be a day, it's coming, probably not long, Lord, in which every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Father, we reject the advice and the philosophy of the poem Invictus. We reject, Lord, the insanity of Belshazzar, someone who had rejected your counsel, your advice, someone who had put his hope in the little gods of this world the things like him Lord thanks for interrupting our world from time to time interrupting our lives to remind us that life is not all that it seems that you're sovereignly at work behind the scenes to bring about your goodwill help us live life soberly Lord rationally sanely help us to read your word and be aware of the warnings you give to us and the future to come Lord, Babylon was destroyed this very night. Babylon the Great was destroyed in a single night, the city that thought it could never be taken. Lord, Babylon the, the Great in Revelation 17 and 18 in the future that says I'm a queen and sit forever, it's destroyed. Lord, in the end, you're the only God who stands. You're the God, you're our rock. Lord, we humbly submit to you. We ask you for your wisdom. We praise you, Lord. We reject the gods of this world and seek you only. In Jesus' name, amen.